Okay, hello everyone. A couple of small announcements before we begin. Um, for those of you who have friends who missed this lecture, please tell them to go on YouTube and watch it. Uh, our beading sale, which was meant to take place today, has been postponed to December the 11th from 1 to 5 p.m. So please come and support the Jewelry Club. And also tonight on YouTube, we are streaming our premiere of Councillor Mike Cohen, who is interviewing Ian Halperin on his new book, Bigot. So now without further ado, here is Dr. Joe Schwartz with Science Demystified. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <clears throat> okay. Today, we're going to start with tomatoes, because therein lies the story. <clears throat> First of all, the history. Originally, they were native to South America. A lot of people are surprised to hear that. And they were introduced to Europe by Columbus, along with the potato and tobacco. Uh, all of those were uh, from South America. So they went first to Europe, and then from there, they came back here. But what is interesting about the history of the tomato in North America is that it was thought to be poisonous. Now, why was that? It had to do with botany and the resemblance of the tomato plant and the small tomatoes, which at that time were, uh, were the, the popular ones, to belladonna. Now, belladonna is uh, toxic. It belongs into the nightshade plant family, as do tomatoes and potatoes. Uh, and, uh, some of those nightshades contain a high dose of atropine, which can be toxic. Belladonna is very interesting. It's called belladonna from the Latin for beautiful woman. Because in Roman times, ladies would put a small amount of belladonna juice into their eyes to dilate the pupil, because that was thought to make them more beautiful. So that's where belladonna comes from. But belladonna is toxic. The tomato obviously is not. But because they are botanically related, it was believed that it was toxic as well. Well, when did we start eating tomatoes as a non-toxic fruit and it is a fruit although it's normally said to be a vegetable but botanically the tomatoes is a fruit well that story takes us to salem new jersey not salem massachusetts not where the witch trials were although this particular story if you go on the internet is usually confused with the Salem, Massachusetts. People think that there's only one Salem, whereas in fact, there are dozens of Salems in the US. But the, this one is Salem, New Jersey, which is said to be the birthplace of tomato consumption in North America, with the following story. In 1820, in front of the courthouse in Salem, New Jersey, which still stands today, a gentleman by the name of Robert Gibbon Johnson got the tomato industry in North America going by proving that it was not toxic. He was a horticulturalist, and he decided that people should be eating tomatoes. He knew that they weren't toxic, but people thought they were. He needed a demonstration. So he organized a demonstration. He took out ads in the local newspaper inviting the public 
on a Sunday afternoon to the steps of the courthouse in Salem, New Jersey, where they would witness this epic event because he promised that he would eat a tomato in full sight of the public. And people came. And he hired a little orchestra to play a funeral dirge in the background as he picked up a tomato, bit into it, and survived. And thus, as the story goes, the eating of tomatoes was popularized in North America. It's an interesting story, and it's told by many people, and you'll find many references to it on the internet. The only part of this story that is true is that Robert Gibbon Johnson was a real person, and he really was a horticulturalist. He was a gentleman farmer in Salem, New Jersey. And he is remembered today with this plaque and the house where he supposedly lived, champion of New Jersey tomatoes. Well, he may have been a tomato grower, but the story of the Salem courthouse and inviting people to watch him eat a tomato is a total myth. But of course, it makes for a nice, intriguing story. So intriguing, in fact, that to this day, in Salem, New Jersey, they, every year, have a tomato festival where they recreate, dressed up as Robert Gibbon Johnson, that supposed event, which never happened, where someone who plays the role of Johnson eats a tomato. And of course, everyone cheers, and the tomato festival begins in, in New Jersey. Uh, so if you check this out on the internet, you'll see many, many references to this story, essentially claiming that it's true, whereas there's nothing true about it except that he was a real person. But there is the festival in Salem, New Jersey, that is true. But perhaps the most interesting uh, tomato festival takes place in Spain every year on the second Wednesday of August. And that is called La Tomatina, which I think is a horrific event. Because what it is, is throwing tomatoes at each other. And the whole town you know, gets tomatoes dumped out and then they throw it at each other. Why is this horrific? Because, as you know, I've told you many times in different contexts, a third of the world goes to bed hungry every night. And to be wasting, you know, uh, food like a tomato, which is, of course, extremely useful. Uh, and to be doing that, I, I think, in this day and age, is is a very wasteful uh, kind of thing. And I don't think it uh, can be or should be uh, justified, especially given what we know about the health benefits of tomatoes these days. And we really do. Researchers have investigated the role that tomato eating plays in, in um, heart disease. And there's this very, very interesting study which was uh, just released a couple of weeks ago. And it comes from Spain, the same country where they hold that, that ridiculous uh, festival. And what they have demonstrated is a link 
between tomato consumption and lowering blood pressure. And in some cases, as you can see down here, it's pretty interesting, 36% lowering with a high tomato intake. Well, what do they mean by high tomato intake? Because, you know, whenever you hear something like this, if you have a scientific mind, first question you ask is how much, you know? I mean, do you have to eat a truckload of tomatoes to have an effect? <clears throat> Turns out that that is not the case. It is essentially one large tomato. Anyway, this is the so-called pictorial abstract that comes with that paper, uh, where in one picture, they attempt to describe exactly what this study was all about. So they had over 7,000 participants, as you can see, aged between about 55 and 80. Well, th th that is a significant number, you know, in terms of scientific studies. Usually, uh, scientific studies are done with much, uh, uh, much fewer uh, people. So anyway, they surveyed them about their tomato consumption. And as you can see, they put them into categories of different amounts of tomatoes that, that, that they ate, and they measured blood pressure. And they came to the conclusion that there is indeed a link, that people who ate more tomatoes had lower blood pressure. And the conclusion is that eating uh, one large tomato a day is what it took to have a, an effect on blood pressure. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, not only blood pressure, uh, but even prostate cancer uh, has been linked to tomato consumption, that is protection against it. But uh, one thing that I can tell you is that when it comes to such dietary studies, you can find studies in either direction. You know, so that you find studies that show positive effect, then you find another study, tomatoes don't pre prevent prostate cancer. Uh, both of those, in fact, can be correct, depending on the kind of study that, that was done. This one here, which kind of, you know, the, the implies that there's no effect, what they did in this case was they measured blood levels of lycopene. Now, lycopene is a red pigment in tomatoes. And they didn't find a relationship between that and prostate cancer. But the tomato is a very complex food that contains hundreds of different compounds. And while it was assumed that lycopene, because of its antioxidant properties, was the active ingredient, that may not be the case. It may be something else in the tomato. So when they do studies on the whole tomato, you do find a protective effect. But that may not be due to that one specific compound, lycopene. But what we can say is that the more fruits and vegetables that are eaten, the greater the protection, not only for prostate, but for other cancers as, as well. And the studies, these, these studies go on. For example, here, here's one where they actually looked at tomato sauce and found that men who ate more tomato sauce had lower PSA levels, which is, you know, very significant. Of course, there's always a possible misinterpreting that and people will say, okay, well, then I'll start eating ketchup, uh, you know, and that's not the way to go. Uh, uh, ketchup is hardly a tomato sauce. It's mostly sugar, right? But... What you want to do if you're going for the tomato 
you want to get the best one. And that is tomato that comes from Italy. It is the San Marzano tomato. And uh, it is the, the tastiest. And when you make a sauce with it, you'll you'll know the difference. You'll also know the difference when you go to pay for it uh, because it is much, much more uh, expensive. And unfortunately, there's also a lot of fraud in this because the San Marzano tomatoes are so desired that there is a market for fakes. And that's why if you want the real thing, you want to look for the DOP. That's the Italian uh, designation that this is authentic that it really comes from the San Marzano region and that uh, uh, you really get the the best stuff. Now, um, when you make a, a tomato sauce, it is good idea to pour some olive oil on it because the components of the tomato that are probably beneficial are more easily absorbed when you uh, combine it with fat because they're fat-soluble compounds. And, uh, you know, we talk about all the benefits of the Mediterranean diet. Well, maybe a lot of that is due to the high consumption of tomatoes. Because in Italy, they certainly eat a lot of tomatoes. But again, you you know, you want to put this into proper context. Because while a, a pizza may have some tomato sauce on it, uh, it is also full of salt because of the of the dough and the pepperoni but if you have just a you know the regular thin crust pizza with lots of tomato sauce that is actually a very healthy uh, thing to eat although i always hesitate you know about labeling any single food as healthy or unhealthy because it's the overall diet that matters but i think we know enough about tomatoes uh, to make sure that we incorporate them in the diet. But forget the story about Robert Gibbon Johnson doing his uh, his little demo. All right, well, sticking with Italy, we're going to go to Orvieto, which is sort of in the middle of the boot. And it's a small town. And we're going to go back in history. We're going back to the 17th century. And the shepherd who was herding a sheep until one of them got bitten by a snake and it started to limp. And then it began to graze around and the shepherd noticed that its health improved and it completely recovered. So he thought that it must have something to do with whatever the sheep was eating. And he told this story back in the little town of uh, Orvieto where Geralmo Ferranti heard about it, put on his thinking cap, and all of a sudden decided that there was money to be made here. So he came up with a concoction which came to be called Orvietan from the town Orvieto. And uh, citing the story of the miraculous recovery of the sheep from the snake bite, he started to sell this on the street as a panacea, as a cure for everything. And it became very popular. 
And he himself became known as Orvietan, the man from Orvieto. And the product uh, was especially popular among the sort of middle class and the upper classes. It was not so popular with physicians, not because of what you might think, not because there wasn't any real evidence for its efficacy, but because physicians at that time were selling their own wonder products. They were called Mithridatum and Theriac. There were all kinds of complex mixtures of herbs, and they were also supposed to be cures for everything. The Orvietan itself was a secret concoction, supposedly, with all kinds of, of herbs, uh, herbs in there, and some delightful things like viper flesh. The stranger the ingredients were, the better the people thought that it would work. You know. And this, I guess, we would really put in the category of snake oil. And of course, we had some of that in North America as well, as you know. Uh, today, we use the expression snake oil to describe anything that doesn't really have any uh, evidence. But at one time, these things, at least in North America, were really sold as snake oil because snakes uh, never suffered from arthritis, right? They were supple, they curved all over the place, and they were thought to be well-oiled on the inside so that if you extracted their oil, it would be a cure for arthritis. <clears throat> but anyway, Orvietan was sold in Europe in 1700s and, and uh, 1800s as, uh, as a miracle medicine. It was you know, sold by mountebanks on street corners. It was a very popular product, you know, akin to dietary supplements today. And probably it was as effective as today's, most of today's dietary supplements. Anyway, the story was forgotten until this gentleman, Lamberto Bernardini, decided to recreate this concoction uh, in the present climate. So in Orvieto, in Italy now, there is actually a store where he sells this thing. Now, of course, it doesn't really claim that it's it's a, a cure-all. Uh, it only says that it's a digestive help. And uh, here it is. That's what it looks like now. And you see the picture of the sun. Well, that has an interesting story with it too. That refers to Louis XIV, who of course was known as the Sun King. What's he got to do with this? Because way back when he was king, he licensed the selling of Orvietan to uh, a gentleman, uh, Christoph Contigi. And this is the, the licensing that, that Louis XIV uh, uh, signed. And today, that actual paper, which I think was probably quite worth quite a lot, is there in that store in Italy, in Orvieto, along, of course, with the picture of, of, of Louis and other documentation about this, uh, uh, this thing. And uh, also he will show you in the store the different kind of herbs that go into it and how these are all mixed together and uh, distilled. And you get the 
product, which is uh, is not cheap, but it's not horrifically expensive uh, either. And while he doesn't make any out and out claims in terms of you know health benefits, uh, he says that you know maybe modernity went too far, you know, and that we should go back to the old days when you know things life was more simple and you didn't have to resort to prescription drugs to just take natural cures and uh i said uh we can easily live well using things from 400 years ago i don't think so uh but it's sort of a, a nice little marketing uh, uh feature i i don't know if we can get uh, get it here i haven't seen it but you can you can order it on online and uh, of course it has historical uh, interest but you know this idea that things were better in the old days you know when we just use natural products this is absolute nonsense you know um, uh, without modern science we'd still be dying at the age of 50 as you know as was very common uh women would die in childbirth babies would would be dying i mean there's no question that things are better today than they were in the so-called good old days well let's go back more than 400 years to those good old days let's go back thousands of years to the days of the dinosaurs and the tree that already was there when the dinosaurs walked the earth. It is the oldest known tree. Anyone know what that is? Ginkgo tree, exactly. This is the ginkgo biloba tree. And uh, because of, of its history, its longevity, it has created a lot of attention, especially because it has a long history of use as a medicine. Now, many plants, of course, have a long history of use as, as medicine because let's face it, until roughly, you know, 100, 150 years ago, the only medicines available were the ones that could be somehow harvested from nature, from plants or minerals, whatever. I mean, what else was there? There was, there was nothing else. So uh, ginkgo does have an interesting long, long history. And um, the Chinese, thousands of years ago, were using ginkgo uh, for all kinds of things. And, you know, that's another fascinating business. When you look at the history of, of these herbal products, the claims that are made generally is, is for virtually every disease that you've ever heard of. Today, ginkgo supplements are still around. I mean... By the dozens and dozens and dozens, you go on the internet and you'll see extracts of the leaf, extract of the bark, ginkgo oil, ground up leaves, every possible type of, of ginkgo product, and with claims of all sorts of benefits. And again, you see everything from depression to vision problems to circulation problems, cancer, and I think I've probably told you this before because we've talked about supplements before. The more claims that are made on behalf of anything, the less likely that any of them are true. Because this is just not the way that the body works. 
uh, you know, we have different systems. I mean, you don't even treat different kinds of cancer the same way. You don't treat leukemia the same way that you treat breast cancer you, or the way you treat a brain tumor, even though those are related diseases, but the treatments are very different. So any suggestion that, you know, one single product can treat everything is, is destined to be wrong. But the um, condition for which uh, Ginkgo has received the most attention is memory uh, issues. And many of uh, the ginkgo supplements out there will tell you that it will help support normal brain function, uh, etc. And this, these days, is very popular. Why? Because as the hippies of the 1960s now are becoming senior citizens, and are starting to struggle with memory problems, uh, they start reaching out for supplements. And most of these ginkgo supplements will call attention to their improvement for uh, memory, alertness, etc. Well, is there anything to this? I mean, you know, you would think, here's something that's been around for thousands of years, people taking it over all that time, why would they keep taking it if it doesn't work, right? I mean, this is, a, this is the way that many of these historical things are, are promoted. Uh, of course, there are all kinds of reasons why these things are still with us, mostly because of placebo effect. And when you don't have anything else and you believe that some herbal supplement is going to do you good, 30 to 40% of the time it will. It will change at least your perception of, of the disease. But of course, what we look for is evidence. What we look for is proper randomized clinical trials. That's the gold standard where you have two groups of people. One group is taking whatever you're testing the other is taking a placebo, and nobody knows who is taking what until the end of the study when all of the, the data is decoded, right? So studies like that with ginkgo, in fact, have been done. And this is the uh, uh, best study that has been done to date because it involved a very large uh, number of people. And uh, half of them were taking 120 milligrams of, of ginkgo twice daily. And the other uh, half of, of the experimental population was taking a placebo. And you can see the results. Compared to placebo, the use of ginkgo biloba 120 milligrams twice daily did not result in less cognitive decline in older adults. So there you there you go. Uh, you know, there's a proper randomized uh, uh, study. And uh, even more concerning is that in that same study, they found a slight increase of breast and colorectal uh, cancer. Um, I, I wouldn't place all that much importance on that because you know, the numbers were small. I just noticed a spelling mistake. Yeah. <laughs>
anyway, uh, a spelling mistake aside, I wouldn't put too much emphasis uh, on that. But I would put emphasis on this. The possible interactions of ginkgo with prescription drugs. This is something that has been well studied, not only for ginkgo, but for other herbal remedies as well. And the medications with which it can interact, like anticonvulsants, antidepressants, antihypertensive agents, blood thinners, etc., those are medications that are taken by many people. And when we talk about interaction, what kind of interactions can there be? There can be two kinds of interactions. Either it reduces the efficacy of the prescription drug or it increases it, neither of which is good. Uh, so for example, in the case of um, the blood thinners, well, ginkgo itself has a blood thinning effect. I mean, blood thinning is really not the scientific term. Anticoagulant is the real scientific term. It just means that it reduces the chance of blood clot formation. Okay. Well, blood thinning is something that has to be very carefully monitored. You know, you you don't want blood clots, but you also don't want to eliminate the formation of blood clots because that is part of our immune system. When you cut your hand, the reason that it heals is because the blood clots there and then chokes off your bleeding, right? So these things have to be very carefully uh, monitored. And if uh, someone is, for example, taking heparin or taking Coumadin, which are your classic blood thinners, and you also take ginkgo, it is going to increase the effect of the of the blood thinner, which means that you're going to be more prone to bleeding. So one always has to take into account when you're looking at these herbal supplements, the possible interaction with uh, uh, prescription drugs. But of course, you can also find studies uh, that cast an even bigger shadow on, on, on ginkgo. For example, this one here, which showed that on surveying a number of ginkgo products, some of them didn't even contain any of ginkgo. Some contained less, some contained more than what it said on the label. This is not uncommon, unfortunately, with supplements because nobody checks. There are no real regulations. I mean, you know that when you're buying aspirin and it says 325 milligrams per tablet, that's what you're getting. With these things, you don't know. Uh, some more scary things about ginkgo uh, and uh, the possibility of a link to cancer. It is in mice, true, and humans are not large mice, but many studies start with, with mice. And you can see that when they're given ginkgo, you increase the rate of certain cancers. And that's why the International Agency for Research on Cancer now actually ranks, officially ranks ginkgo biloba in its category 2B, meaning that it is possibly carcinogenic to humans. So this is a dietary supplement, which is available in every pharmacy, in every health food store, and yet IARC ranks it as a possible human uh, carcinogen. 
The same category, this category 2B, is where you have things like gasoline and naphthalene, aspartame, pickled vegetables, and lead, all of which are ranked as possibly carcinogenic to humans. But then the supporters of, of ginkgo supplements will also pluck out some studies and show you that, you know, here's a study where they actually demonstrated that it had some benefit on cognitive decline. It isn't surprising that you find studies on both sides. Why? Because if you do enough studies about anything, sometimes you will get results purely by chance. The analogy uh, that would be appropriate here is if you take 100 coins and you toss them in the air and you count what happens, what will you get? Well, maybe you get 48 heads, 52 tails. You do this again, you might get 45, 55. Do it once more, you get 47, 53. You do it enough times. One time, you might get 70 heads and 30 tails. Right? If that's the only one that you report, people would think that you've got biased coins. So... With enough studies being done, sometimes you will find some statistically random results. That's why we look at all of the studies. And when you do that, you put together all of the studies. And this you know, has been done. There are all kinds of, of review articles on, on Ginkgo. You come to the conclusion that the detriments outweigh the possible benefits. So, you know, that's not to exclude the possibility that, that there might not be some benefit, but the bad outweighs the good. And also, uh, you know, when, when you look at all of these studies on memory, and there are more and more of these now as the population ages and more people are worried about their, their memory, you also have to take a look at the kind of testing that is done to evaluate memory and to see whether or not that really is of any practical significance. Because the way that this is done is they ask you, for example, to look at a list of names. And then 15 minutes later, they'll give you another list and they ask you to tick off the names that you may have, that you've seen in the other list. That's the kind of typical memory test. But that, even if you do well on that, it doesn't mean that you're gonna remember better where you put your keys. Or that, you know, uh, it's so statistical significance on these memory tests does not necessarily translate to, to something that's practical in everyday uh, life. All right, so, so much for ginkgo. The one thing that we do know about it for sure is that it is a very pretty tree. It's a very pretty tree. However, when the leaves of it fall in the fall and they get crushed when you're walking about them, they release a terrible smell. Yeah, it's a very character, very terrible smell. But the tree itself is a very pretty tree. As I said, it's been around since the time of dinosaurs. There are many different species. You could even grow them in your house as a mini tree, a little, uh, there's a little uh, ginkgo tree, a bonsai tree. Well, nature, of course, is very interesting in terms of the compounds that we get from there. And uh, here is one. This is the crocus sativus. 
very pretty flower, and it gives us the most expensive spice in the world, which is saffron, right? And saffron actually comes from the little stigma here, which is the female part of the of the flower. And interestingly enough, uh, in order to get the spice, you have to pluck out the stigma. That's a very time-consuming uh, business. And uh, if you pluck them out, then uh, you sell it as a spice. The interesting thing about the plant is that it cannot uh, reproduce sexually. That is, it cannot reproduce by pollination. Uh, the only way that it reproduces is when its bulb, its root, reproduces so-called vegetatively. It actually multiplies in, in the ground. That's the only way that this thing uh, reproduces. But the spice is... Um, uh, as I said, it's the most expensive spice in the world. And uh, mostly the, the best quality comes from uh, from Iran. And uh, a little bag like that uh, can run about $100. And you can see when it's dry, see what it looks like. And you can dissolve it in uh, hot water and you get a tea. Uh, you don't need very much. So, I mean, the tea itself doesn't become so expensive because you need very little of the saffron in order to give it the color and, and to give it some uh, some taste. Now, the chemistry of this is, is is very interesting. I mean, like any natural product, it's got hundreds of different compounds in it which have been uh, studied. But, of course, what we're, uh, we're interested in here is the uh, stigma, which is this, which is the red little thread-like thing. And uh, that's, as I said, that's the female part, that's the, the male part, but this flower does not reproduce the, like other flowers uh, do. It grows from a, a bulb, it's called a corm, C-O-R-M, it's called a corm. And when these are buried in the ground, uh, they, grow uh, these little buds, which then become uh, other corms. So you've got to plant those. And the flower grows from this. And once the flower dies, they will pick out the corm from the ground and replant it uh, next year. And you get these fields of the crocus uh, uh, growing. And when uh, it eventually flowers, then, of course, the only interest uh, is in, in the uh, little red uh, threads there, which have to be plucked out uh, by hand. Very laborious, which explains the cost. That's about $20,000 a, a kilo, uh, which, of course, is a lot of money, but <laughs> you don't need a kilo. Nobody buys a kilo of, of saffron. Uh, you buy, you know, a gram or two grams, you know, for forty, fifty dollars, you know. But I mean, of course, even that's that's a lot. Now, the the um, color of it is due to compounds called carotenoids, which are the same kind of compounds that give carrots their their color. They're very common in nature, and uh, 
However, what is interesting is the taste, because if you just pluck, pluck it from the flower and taste it, it has no taste whatsoever. The taste only develops when you dry the stuff. And there are specific techniques on, you know, how you uh, how you dry it. And uh, during the drying process, that's when the real chemistry takes place and you, you develop all of the uh, aromatic compounds and all of the uh, flavor compounds. And this, of course, has been well studied. You can see changes in saffron volatile profile because, of course, it's a it's a huge industry. You know, so you want to maximize what you can get out of it. We know that the the compound that is responsible for most of the taste is called picrocrosin, and that is all also the one that you check for, that analytical chemists check for, to see if a sample is authentic. And let me tell you, this is a huge issue because the adulteration of saffron is a big business, as you might appreciate, because the thing is so expensive. And whenever something is so expensive, someone will try to, to cheat you, right? So uh, there's a lot of fake saffron that is out there on the market. Well, how do you make the fake saffron? Uh, they use parts of other plants that are then dyed with synthetic dyes. And uh, in order to increase the weight, they'll add things like lactose, which is the, the milk sugar. And these people are very adept, you know, at, at making the thing look like uh, the real stuff. And the only way you know is by checking. And I said, as I said, the one, the compound that they check for is the one that I just showed you before, which is the characteristic um, flavor that you find in, in saffron. Now, saffron has a very long history of use and a lot of proponents. For example, Henry VIII. Henry VIII loved saffron. It was always present on dinner table. And he actually forbade the use of saffron as a dye because it can be used as a dye. It was illegal under Henry VIII with stiff punishment if someone was caught using saffron as a dye because then he thought that would not be enough left to be used in food. But that wasn't as bad <clears throat> as in Nuremberg, Germany, where the penalty in the 1600s for adultering saffron was to be burned or to be buried alive. So you didn't want to fool around with, with that. Well, uh, of course, today, the most common use of, of saffron is in, in foods. And there are numerous recipes and you don't need very much of the stuff to, to give it color and give it a little taste. But it can also be used as a dye. And that's the, the classic color of wool or cotton that is dyed with saffron. And uh, perhaps the best example of this uh, are the robes of the Buddhist uh, monks, which to this day are dyed with saffron. Historically, we also know that Cleopatra used saffron-based lipstick. Uh, so it has a long history of use. And as with most plant products, there is also history of medicinal use. And the question is, is there anything to this? Over the years, all kinds of claims have been made. 
again, but these are the same kind of claims that are made with, you know, made for so many of uh, plant products uh, out there, none of which really has any scientific evidence. The ancient Romans believed that you could um, uh, drink alcohol and not get drunk if you also consumed some saffron. And during their orgies, of course, which were legendary, alcohol and saffron were uh, consumed together. There's absolutely no evidence, of course, that saffron uh, does reduce any dependence on, on, on alcohol. But today, there is indeed research on saffron, whether or not it has you know, potential medical value. It is a very powerful antioxidant which means that it can neutralize those rogue species we call free radicals in, in, in the body. And of course, there are claims uh, mostly by the supplement industry uh, about effects. Uh, I wouldn't put too much uh, value into those claims because uh, uh, there are no real randomized double-blind studies. And uh, furthermore, it would be very expensive to... Uh, have medicines made from saffron because if there were an, an ingredient in there that really had uh, physiological activity in a significant way, the amount of saffron that you'd have to use in order to extract uh, enough of that material would would uh, make this uh, financially, you know, not not uh, possible. So anyway, these. Uh, uh, plant products are interesting. I mean, we've come from you know from tomatoes to to uh, uh, ginkgo and 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 saffron, and you can see that there's a lot of fascinating science there. But I want to deal with one uh, other uh, interesting uh, topic here uh, because today there's so much talk about sexual dysphoria. The um, the issue of, of people who believe that they are born into the wrong body, uh, that the mind and the physical body are not a match. This is why today, I mean, we see signs like this uh, pretty recent. I mean, you know, when we were growing up, you never saw anything like that. Men went to men's bathroom, women went to women's bathroom. Uh, there was no such thing as, you know, gender-neutral bathrooms or or whatever. Uh, the concept of, of gender dysphoria is a very, very interesting one. And, of course, one of the best examples is Bruce Jenner and Caitlyn Jenner, obviously the same person. And uh, Bruce, uh, in the Montreal Olympics 1976, uh, was the decathlon champion. Uh, decathlon is one of the premier events of the Olympics, right? You compete in 10 different uh, uh, competitions, everything from long, long jump to running to high jump, etc. So the winner of the decathlon usually is said to be the best athlete in, in the world. And uh, I remember watching him. I, I, I was there in the Olympic Stadium the, the, on the final day of the decathlon. And I remember Bruce running around the track, wrapped in an American flag. I mean, it's still etched in my mind. I would have never at that time believed that he would become Caitlin 
Um, I mean, in those days, uh, nobody ever talked about such things. It, you know, wasn't, uh, it just didn't come out. I mean, obviously, the phenomenon itself existed, but it was swept under the carpet and was never really talked about. Today, there's a great deal of talk about, about this. Um, and it still is, you know, somewhat of a mysterious uh, thing is uh, how uh, you just feel inside that you are not the same gender that you were born as. And I think it's one of those things that uh, very difficult to understand for anyone who, you know, isn't in that category. But it's uh, obviously a, a very, very real phenomenon. But the reason that there's so much talk about it these days is because of the um, question if transgender people should compete in gen uh, uh, gender that they were born in or gender that they uh, changed to. And the reason that this, this is becoming a, a big issue now is because there are men who now have become, you know, transgender and are competing in women's competitions. And the, the classic case that really has been in, in the news a great deal is the story of Leah Thomas. Uh, Leah Thomas is a swimmer, a world-class swimmer who uh, has transitioned and now is competing as a woman. So what's the debate all about? Uh, but whether or not the male characteristics that of course are still there, does that give uh, an advantage, right? I mean, the the body is still the same body, even though, of course, when there's sex change like this, uh, there are hormone supplements that are used. So when you are transitioning from uh, a male to a female, the drugs that are used are drugs that block the activity of testosterone, which is the main male sex hormone. It is also the hormone that that is at least partly responsible for the greater strength that men have than, than women. So the argument here is that if they are undergoing hormone therapy, it means that they are also reducing the strength that they had as a man, and therefore you should be able to compete as, as a woman. Except that it isn't exactly like that because the muscle structure that you have, that you built up as a man, does not just disappear. And so uh, there probably is uh, uh, an advantage. And um, so here's you know the kind of studies that they, uh, they carry out, uh, and you know to see whether or not uh, you still retain some of your strength after you know transitioning is this is becoming a, a very big issue because uh there are more transgender people than anyone would have thought 
So it's it's not such a tiny minority. And many of them are competitive athletes. So the question is, you know, if if she swims in a woman's race and wins, is she winning, you know, purely on her training and talent or also because of having once uh, been male, male gender? Now, the really scientifically interesting question here is, what is the cause or is is there a cause is, i mean is is there some sort of environmental connection here uh, why is it that these people begin to feel that they are in of the wrong gender it generally doesn't happen when they're very young it, it develops over time so the question has been whether or not there's an environmental connection so I'll tell you this last story here because it's an interesting one. And the story actually starts with celluloid. <laughs> what on earth does have to do with that? Well, that's an interesting question. Oh, celluloid is the first commercial plastic that was ever developed. And uh, it is um, uh, based on uh, cellulose. You react cellulose with nitric acid and sulfuric acid. You get cellulose nitrate. You dissolve this in alcohol, you let the alcohol evaporate, and you get a plastic. That's the plastic we call celluloid, and it was used in making film, for example. The, the movie industry actually is sometimes called the celluloid um, industry. But in order to make this plastic soft and pliable, as you need for film, they added something we call a plasticizer, and the original one was camphor. Uh, camphor is an exudate of a tree. It worked very well, but it has a, a smell uh, that uh, you don't want in your plastic uh, products. So in the 1920s, when a set of synthetic compounds called the phthalates was introduced, they were immediately adopted as plasticizers. They worked well. Now, phthalate is not one compound. It's a family of compounds. And in, in, in chemistry, we use the letter R the same way you would use X in mathematics. So it is a family of, of related compounds. And when polyvinyl chloride, PVC, as a plastic was introduced, it turned out that phthalates were the ideal plasticizers. This is what made it soft and pliable. So polyvinyl chloride, for example, could be used in records, if you still remember records, where it was the record was hard. But the same material, PVC, could be made soft and pliable by adding a plasticizer, which is what you'd need for a PVC shower curtain. Well, phthalates are widely used because PVC is one of the most widely used plastics in the world. And then furthermore, other uses for these compounds were found. They retard the evaporation of smells. So they're used in perfume because it makes the perfume last longer. PVC is used in plastic wraps. It is used in the making of toys. It's used in cosmetics. All of these have phthalates in them. And hospital equipment, catheter tubes, IV tubes, etc., made of PVC, they're made soft and pliable. 
with the use of phthalates. So it's not surprising that these compounds end up in the environment. We know that they do. And they also end up in our blood supply. And then the question comes, so what? Just because you find something doesn't mean it's doing something. But with phthalates, it turns out that they block the action of testosterone. They're so-called endocrine disruptors. And this is what introduces this fascinating connection of gender dysphoria. Is it possible that it is due to some environmental you know, uh, contamination? And um, we know that because these chemicals like phthalates and other such endocrine disruptors are, are, are widely used, that they do get into the environment and some suggest that the declining sperm count that we're noticing globally is due to these substances. We know, for example, that, that things like hypospadias, where the urethra does not open up in the right place, that has been linked to, to uh, phthalates. We know that when you take pregnant women and you measure the phthalate in their blood, and then you examine the male children to whom they give birth, the anal genital distance is shorter. And you would think that this is a curious measurement, but it turns out that that distance between the anus and genitals is hormone dependent. So if it turns out that it is shorter, uh, it means that there's a feminizing effect here. So it may be that this so-called you know, gender dysphoria, which is more widespread than anyone ever believed, 5% of uh, young Americans, and obviously the same thing would be for Canadians, uh, believe that they are born into the wrong gender. And maybe the reason that, that we're seeing this more and more now is because of these endocrine uh, disruptors. So there's a lot of you know interesting uh, chemistry here, a lot of studies on this. And what they're finding is the increasing femininity that parallels an increase in uh, these phthalates in, in the blood. Now, how do they measure this thing? I mean, how do you, you know, determine femininity or masculinity? Uh, there are all kinds of questionnaires that they use in order to determine these. And these are accepted by psychologists as, as being a real measure of one's male or female feelings. Uh, another thing that they've determined is uh, with the uh, onset of puberty, the timing of the puberty is also dependent on uh, a phthalate concentration, which means that there are endocrine effects here. So, you know, in this study, here's the conclusion that when they look for the concentration of these specific chemicals in the blood, they find that the higher the concentration the more feminine characteristics someone uh, has. But you also have to keep in mind that this phthalates, this is just one class of chemicals. There are many other endocrine disruptors, you know, ranging from pesticides to parabens, which is a preservative, etc. And then there's also the possibility that uh, 
early childhood toys that what kids play with will also determine what happens to them in uh, in the future. And then, of course, there's a possibility of genetic uh, developments as, as well. So there's no conclusion here. I just bring this up as, you know, it's a very interesting area that is being looked at of, you know, why it is that, that uh, we now hear so much about uh, transgender and, uh, you know, gender dysphoria. And it may have to do with some environmental uh, issues. But said, you know, the case is not ironclad, certainly, but it's an interesting one to explore. All right. Well, that's all that we will explore uh, today. And, uh, you know, gives you a bit of an insight into the kind of things that we deal with all the time in, in chemistry and the kind of things that are interesting and worth uh, investigating. So, any questions? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I doubt very much. Uh, uh, I bet we could Google that in about five seconds and, and, and find that. Uh, well, whether or not it, it, the word, just the word lycopene, uh, because the lyco, like lycanthropy, right, is wolves, wolves. Uh, whether it has anything to do with wolves, I, I, I can't think of any reason that 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 would be. Uh, I'm not sure what the etymology of lyco is. If someone has phone, you can look, Google that. See, see what do etymology lyco. See what comes up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good question. And, uh, you know, th this is the kind of thing that epidemiologists look at. They look at populations and you see disease patterns, uh, et cetera. And of course, they look at longevity, which is the the, the best measure. And uh, no, the longevity in Italy is not any different from anywhere else in the, uh, in the Western world. Uh, prostate problems are lower frequency in Italy. But there again, you have issues about diagnosis. Uh, you know whether or not in you know the remote Italian villages are you are you going to look for these these problems? Whereas in big cities, you're more likely to find them. But there's no no dramatic difference. But what you do find in general is that populations that consume more fruits and vegetables are indeed healthier. They have greater longevity. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, I, I've never seen any significant criticism of it. 
Uh, I know that for two years during COVID, they canceled it, but it was back this past year. And, you know, I mean, it's you're not talking about just throwing, you know, half a dozen tomatoes around. Thousands and thousands and thousands of you know, bushels of, of tomatoes. Do they? Yeah, well, it's this this is a kind of food fight, food fight we can do without. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't see that part of the news, but uh, obviously a lot of complications. It's the it's a, it's essentially the high salt content. the 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 reason that the the pickled vegetables are in there is because in China, where they eat a lot of pickled they pickle everything, they have a high incidence of uh, nasal pharyngeal cancer. And that's traced to the eating high salty foods. Yeah. Kimchi is a fermented food. Yes, it does. It does. Now the thing the thing about that is is that there are also benefits to eating fermented foods. Uh, with just about everything you put in your mouth, there are risks and benefits, you know. It's always amounts that matter you know you you don't overdo anything yeah uh yeah i i mean i i think through the genetics i mean you you investigate the genetics i mean I, i'm not sure what the you know uh what genes are different in hermaphrodites, but I think you can tell by looking at the genetics of, of it. But I'm not sure. I mean, I have to ask a geneticist about that. But uh, I mean, you can, all, of course, certainly tell if someone is a male or female, right? By the, yeah. Well, no, hermaphrodites, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's why they're hermaphrodites, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that's uh, that's again that's a that's a, a different story than the transgender, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. No, no, I don't think organic is worth the money. I, I think. Uh, the only benefit to organic may be environmental, but uh, the trace amounts of, of pesticide residues are insignificant.
No, it doesn't cause a change in uh, in the DNA. That uh, if you're talking about changing DNA, then you're talking cancer. You're talking much more, you know, uh, serious things. Uh, it it causes change in male female characteristics that which are not not genetic. They're not genetic. No, that's not no. Now it may be that the genes that you're born with maybe predispose you to you know the transgender uh, business. But you don't change your genes by with the phthalates, but you can change your characteristics, which are not genetically controlled. I mean, you know, not female and male characteristics, like, you know, whether you're less or more aggressive, that's not DNA controlled. No, you're not you're not going to change your DNA with the, the phthalates. exposure to radiation certainly causes a change in DNA. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a special crocus. Yeah, yeah. You know, cro crocus is a family of, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a very specific uh, crocus. Yeah. Who uses saffron? Yeah, like for what? Yeah, but what? What food? Paella? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll look up the lycopene thing. Uh, I, I don't think it's got to do with wolves, but we'll, we'll check that out. All right. So the next time is January. Hard to believe it's going to be 2024. Scary.